Uh, as Hal mentioned, uh, we're going to be continuing our series on Hebrews this morning. Uh, we've come to the end of chapter 9. Uh, it's just six verses, uh, but there's a lot packed in here. Um, the writer is really uh, pulling together several of the themes that have come back up in just the last um, couple chapters uh, here at the end of 9. So uh, let's give our attention uh, to the reading of God's Word. Uh, if you don't have your Bible with you, uh, we do have it printed for you there uh, in the bulletin. This is Hebrews chapter 9, uh, verse 23 to 28. Thus it was necessary... For the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered, not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray now uh, that you would open it up to us, that you would enable us uh, to receive it and to believe it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Jesus uh, is better. Um, Hopefully, uh, by now, that's something you've heard uh, several times. It's one of the writer's uh, main points that he's trying to make in the book of the Hebrews, that Jesus is better than the angels. Uh, He's better than than Moses and Joshua and all the priests. Uh, But when when Hebrews says that Jesus uh, is better, uh, particularly particularly with regard to the Old Covenant, he doesn't mean better like a car uh, is better than a horse. As though it were just a matter uh, of efficiency. Uh, It's more like an oak tree is better uh, than an acorn. That is the... The acorn not only has all the potential of an oak tree in it, but its very purpose is uh, the tree. An oak tree is not, it's not an alternative <laughs> to an acorn. It's the fulfillment of uh, the acorn. And so maybe if I could just stretch the analogy a little bit, uh, if you were to go back to the acorn instead of the tree, uh, not only would you lose the tree, uh, you would reveal that you really didn't understand what the acorn was for in the first place. So it's not simply, it's not simply an old covenant bad, uh, Jesus good. It's old covenant good, and Jesus is immeasurably greater in every way. And so as this writer is addressing this, this weary congregation, uh, they have been tempted uh, through their own uh, suffering and, and persecution to turn back to an old, uh, familiar way of worship and religion. He wants them to see that all of those things find their fulfillment uh, in Christ. They have always uh, pointed to and anticipated his work and his coming. And so his point isn't simply to say, uh, don't look back to the tabernacle. That wouldn't actually have that much to do with you and I this morning. 
Uh, his point is to say, don't look for hope and confidence in anything other than Jesus. Um, all of his explanations about the tabernacle and its connections uh, to Christ, they're not just to show us uh, how that works, but to draw us into a deeper uh, confidence and trust in who Christ is. He's giving us reasons to find our confidence in Jesus, uh, that you can trust him, uh, that you don't have to look anywhere else. So the first reason he gives that we can find our confidence in Jesus is very simply that he is for us, uh, that all his high priestly work is for the sake of his people. Uh, in the first two verses there, he uses that word copies um, twice. Uh, he's used this word before to describe the, the tabernacle and, it, and its furniture earlier in chapter 8. And so if you remember that the tabernacle, Hal mentioned this uh, just a few minutes ago, it was a symbolic representation of this greater uh, reality. And, and so when he says heavenly things, he, he's telling us that's what the tabernacle is a copy of. Okay, so just as the tabernacle was given for God to symbolically dwell with his people, it pointed toward the heavens where God would, would truly dwell uh, with his people. Uh, he, he didn't need a place for himself. Okay, he made a place for us to be with him. And so Christ entered into heaven itself, he says. The writer's telling us the true high priest, that is God's son, uh, he entered into what the most holy place only foreshadowed or pointed forward to. What I want us to see is, is in verse 24, that Christ now appears in the presence of God on our behalf. You see that? That Jesus is there for our sake. That the cross brought us forgiveness, but the end of that was to give us access. That God wants us to be with him. When I, um, when I was a kid, my dad would take me fishing fairly regularly. Um, my, my memory is that I have always uh, been able to tie a hook and catch and clean fish. But as I've, as I've taken my own children fishing, uh, especially in their, their early years, uh, I've realized that dads don't fish. Um, I'm there uh, to tie lures and, and get things out of trees. And it's not that I'm not having a great time, but I am there uh, for them. Uh, if I could put it this way, uh, Christ's presence in heaven is not about him. Uh, if you can believe it, he is there uh, for our sake. Uh, and the Father is always in agreement with the Son, and so he is glad to accept Christ's offering uh, for us. There is no uh, regret in him. Uh, he does not accept us uh, reluctantly. Uh, just, just after realizing that Christ made the sacrifice, no, the Father sent the Son, and it is the Father whom the Son obeys at the cross. God loves His people. He is glad to give us a high priest in Jesus. Apart from Christ, uh, there is no safe access into God's presence. There is only 
his consuming holiness, uh, but in Christ, uh, united to him uh, by faith, uh, we draw near to the throne of grace. So you can place all your confidence in him because he is there for us. Uh, The second reason we see here is we can place our confidence in Christ because Jesus has put away sin for good. Uh, One of the more clear contrast that that comes up here between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant is that the Old Covenant had uh, repeated sacrifices. Uh, He says every year in verse 25, while Christ's sacrifice was once for all. Uh, If you've been around the church uh, for any length of time, that that could all seem pretty straightforward uh, to you. But I, I think to understand the significance here, we have to really try and imagine what it would have been like to experience these repeated uh, sacrifices. Uh, In a flight simulator, uh, you don't actually land a plane, but you do learn a lot more about flying than you would just by reading a manual. Uh, You get a sense of the experience of flying. Well, I don't don't know how long it's been since you read uh, Leviticus, Uh, But one of the things that can be hard for us to understand is that the tabernacle system, it was not just a set of instructions. It was not just a list of rules. It was a simulator. Uh, It was a drama that was to be played out before the people. It was a dress rehearsal for the redemption uh, to come. And so he mentions every year here, I I think he has uh, the Day of Atonement in mind there. I'll, I'll talk about that in a minute later. But there were actually sacrifices every morning and evening of every day. And so you can imagine what it would have been like to observe and even at times uh, participate in this never-ending killing of um, innocent animals, uh, your best animals, the ones without blemish. And every sacrifice would have been an intense reminder of the gravity of sin. This regular shedding of blood, it would have taught them that sin was not acceptable and that it was not normal. Uh, We're not supposed to be comfortable with sprinkling everything with blood. And they weren't comfortable with it either. It was a dramatic presentation of the fact that the world is not the way it's supposed to be. The world is not supposed to be soaked in blood. And yet this is what, this is what sin has brought about. And this is what our sin um, has brought about. And God, God gave them this sacrificial system knowing that they would sin. You see, he wanted to be with them anyway. Romans 5 says it's while we're enemies that we're reconciled to God by the death of his son. God has never waited until his people were okay. He always uh, makes us okay. He's always been the one who cleanses us so that we can be with him. And so the tabernacle taught them not only of the devastating effects of sin, but it taught them God's provision for sin, his desire 
to dwell with them and his willingness to make it happen. And so the, the whole uh, drama stands in stark contrast to the cross of Christ. Uh, the, reason, the reason we don't need any more sacrifices today is because Christ's offering really was enough that it truly put away sin. And if your faith is in him, then your sins have been dealt with definitively. There's nothing you could do to override this judgment. Because Christ has died and sits at God's right hand, it would be unjust for God not to forgive those who put their faith in him. Uh, He must do it, and he wants to do it. Uh, The simulation is over, the writer is telling us. The real thing is here. The objective, final work of Christ means that there is nothing you can do to get more prepared to meet God. There's nothing you can do to get more purified. The cross is it, and all you can do is trust and wait. Uh, Not with anxiety, but with eager expectation, he says. And so we can have confidence in Jesus because he's for us and because he's put our sins away. And lastly, because his return is both certain and good news. Uh, In chapter 6, this is like way back in October or something. Uh, In chapter 6, the writer says that death and judgment are part of what he calls elementary doctrine. In other words, everybody knows these things. Uh, Even the pagans of the day all would have accepted that all men die and then face some kind of judgment. They only would have differed over who did the judging and what the standard would be. But I'm not convinced, I'm not convinced that we really think about death as often or as deeply as we should. I'm grateful for antibiotics and hot water, uh, but, but we live in a fairly sanitized world where uh, meat comes from the store. Uh, we hide old people in nursing homes. Um, even in the midst of a, of a pandemic, uh, for many of us, um, it often just sounds like numbers, 400,000 But death is not a statistic. Uh, It is our destiny, the writer says. And it should raise serious questions for us about meaning. I mean, who am I really with regard to death? If I'm going to die, then why am I here? What am I for? How much time do I have? And what am I going to do until then? The writer says death is appointed, and that means it is not just probable. It is inevitable. Ecclesiastes 7 says death is the end of every man. And so the living should take this to heart. Uh, The wise consider death. 
in this passage, uh, death is, is connected uh, to judgment, and, and the Bible teaches that death itself uh, is a judgment, that the wages of sin uh, is death. But here he has uh, the final judgment in view, uh, a pronouncement on your life. And just as sure as death comes, uh, this judgment uh, will come. There's a parallel going on here between verse 27 and 28. So just look at that with me for a second. Uh, just, as, just as you die once in verse 27, Christ is offered once in verse 28. You see that? Follow along. Uh, the judgment in verse 27 is paired with Christ's appearing in verse 28. And he says, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly uh, waiting for him. For those who eagerly wait, he doesn't come to deal with your sin, but to save, he says. In other words, for believers, sin will have nothing to do with his return. It has already been dealt with, and if you're united to him by faith, uh, your judgment will be his judgment. Uh, Well done, good and faithful servant. Uh, His return will add nothing to your forgiveness. It will only confirm it. It will bring your salvation to its completion when your body uh, will be raised anew. And so his return is pictured here as utterly good news for those who wait for him. It is as certain as the Father's acceptance of the Son. And so we can and we should look forward to it uh, in hope. It is not foolish to eagerly await the return of Christ. And take us back to the tabernacle just one more time. Uh, I mentioned that I think the Day of Atonement is, is in the background uh, of this section. And I know you all remember reading Leviticus 16 as the Old Testament lesson a few weeks ago. But just to bring you up to speed... Uh, One day a year, uh, the high priest would enter into the most holy place. Uh, He would wear a breastplate that would have 12 stones on it, uh, each one representing a tribe of Israel. And so he would represent uh, God's people in God's presence. And as he entered in, people uh, would watch. And there there was an uncertainty about the whole situation. Uh, They would uh, remember, either through personal experience or from just being taught the first five books of the Bible, they would remember what happened to Nadab and Abihu that Hal read to us about earlier. God does not accept just any sacrifice. And so they would watch and wait for the high priest to come back out uh, with anxious hearts. And it wasn't until he came out that they would know uh, that his sacrifice was accepted and then they could rejoice. They would know that his presence has represented them uh, faithfully. In the heavenly liturgy that's pictured here, in the true tent, Christ first offered himself and now he ministers in God's presence on our behalf. And in the final stage at his return, he will leave the heavenly sanctuary to appear a second time. And unlike 
those people in the Old Covenant. We already have confidence that he has been accepted and that we are accepted in him. And so we wait, but it is not anxiously. We wait eagerly and look forward to his return when he comes uh, to gather his people, to bring us with him, uh, to bring us home and to bring us into God's presence. Christians, uh, we wait uh, with confidence. Uh, Waiting tends to have uh, negative connotations. It just means that you want something and you don't have it yet. (laughs) Uh, In a world of immediacy, uh, waiting can seem like like the worst thing. But waiting here, it doesn't just mean it doesn't just mean sitting around. It doesn't just mean uh, I heard a good term the other day, doom scrolling on your phone. Uh, It's not stoicism. It's not not caring about the present. Uh, Waiting for Christians is something uh, that is full uh, of hope. And I think there's there's a couple things, a couple things that make waiting actually impact the present. Uh, One is knowing that the thing you wait for is something that you don't deserve. And until you get that uh, down in your bones, it'll, it'll never make any sense. But the other is knowing that the thing uh, you wait for, it really is worth it. It's worth it. Uh, waiting for Christians means there really is something better. It teaches us patience and reminds us that we're not in control, that the promise of the future deserves our eager expectation. And so we wait, not with anxiety, but eagerly expecting that God is the great keeper of his promises, that we will appear before him in Christ and without fear. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we do pray that you would help us to wait in faith. Not just to pass the time, but that you would grow in us an eager expectation of our future with you. We pray this in your name. Amen.